So this morning, we want to talk about this season that we're in. You know, we live in a season of uncertainty um, where a lot of things continue to seem out of our control. You know, that's kind of the recurring theme over the last couple of months. There are a lot of things that out of, are out of our control. And of course, a lot of this revolves around the coronavirus pandemic. Um, you know, when and how will schools start, right? A lot of parents, uh, we have a lot of educators in our congregation, teachers and so on, who are wondering how is this going to work when we go back to school? A lot out of our control. This idea of wearing a mask, it's a, it's a bizarre thing to be a pastor, to stand up in front of a church and look out at a bunch of people looking back at me with masks. How long is this going to last? We don't know. It's out of our control. You know, there's other things, the riots you see on the news, the racial unrest, uncertain economy, uh, all these things that are just completely out of our control. In a time like this, we're reminded that we are not in control, which begs the question, who is in control? Who is in control and what is really going on? Well, this morning we're going to find ourselves in Nahum, the book of Nahum, uh, which is the seventh book in the book of the 12, the seventh out of 12 minor prophets. And uh, the minor prophets, I think it's a really timely thing for us to be looking at this summer because these books were written during a time of great uncertainty. Uh, politically, things were a complete disaster in that region. Um, Economically, people didn't know where they were going to get their next meal from. People were starving to death. There were diseases. And spiritually, most seriously of all, there was a complete famine, if you will. People were starving spiritually. So as we're going to see this morning in the prophet Nahum, uh, he tells us clearly who is in control. And that's a good reminder for us this morning and who we can trust. You know, Nahum is another one of the short prophets. We call them the minor prophets because they're all a little shorter, uh, not less important, but just smaller. And uh, he's only got three chapters, 47 verses. We almost could read all those. We're not actually going to read all of them. We're going to come back a little later this morning and read through chapter one. Um, but, you know, although it is short, Nahum has this important message for us this morning. Uh, and if he, uh, really, as we're going to see, he had originally addressed this important message to the world's greatest superpower at the time, Assyria. You know, today there's a lot of debate. Well, who's the greatest superpower in the world right now? Well, if you're an American, you would say, well, it's us. We've got bigger military, more economic power. We're the, we're the greatest superpower. If you go around to the other side of the world, uh, Russia or China, they would say, nah, we have more nukes than you do. And so there's this whole debate. Well, during the time of Nahum, there was no debate about who the world's greatest superpower was. It was this nation of Assyria, and the capital of Assyria was Nineveh. And so we're going to see that Nahum speaks to Nineveh. And he announces God's judgment. You know, Assyria was, was what we would call the big man on campus. He was the school bully. He was the axis of evil. Uh, you could list it, the tyrant, the evil empire, fill in the blank. Whatever negative adver adjectives you could come up with, Assyria was the big bad wolf, okay? A really bad nation and had done a lot of bad things. And so Nahum comes on the scene and says, I have an announcement about Assyria. And we want to look at that. But guess what? Nahum's announcement to Assyria is not just to them. It's a message for us today. And there's something ironic about Nahum. Because he's announcing judgment, but do you know what the name Nahum means? It's a, it's a Hebrew word. I think the correct pronunciation, if you can forgive my Hebrew here, is Nahum. Uh, but it means uh, compassion. 
And so even though this guy is bringing a message of judgment, he's also communicating something about God's compassion in the midst of it. And so we want to see that this morning um, in, in our message this morning. So here's the plan. If you have a bulletin, uh, look at, look at, you'll see the outline there and you'll see we have three parts to our message. Uh, first of all, we're going to take an overview of Nahum. Second, we're going to look at the context of what's kind of happening. Why is, why is God making this announcement? Um, and then third, we're going to take a deeper dive back into chapter one and really examine what is the message that Nahum's trying to communicate. Uh, what is God wanting to communicate to us this morning? Now, if you're looking at that outline, either on the screens or if you're at home looking at the bulletin online, how many of you noticed that, that the letters there on one, two, and three are OCD? Anybody? Okay, we got at least one OCD person out there. Okay. Um, but yeah, so hopefully that'll help you remember. We're going to look at, at these three things this morning as we walk through this message. First of all, an overview of Nahum. And so there are three chapters. So I just want to walk us briefly through what's happening. And so in chapter one, this is really interesting, especially in the Old Testament, you get these great descriptions of who God is. You see this a lot in the Psalms. The prophets will do this. Isaiah is probably one of the richest prophets of just listing off the Lord is and God does this and the Lord does that. And here in chapter one of Nahum, we have this amazing description of the Lord is, the Lord is, the Lord does. And, and we're going to come back and dive into that in just a little bit. But what I think we can gain from that is here's the deal. Nahum's about to make a major announcement, a news flash. He's about to say Assyria is going down. But before he does that, before he gives that newsflash, he says, focus your attention on who's in charge here. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who happens to be the God of heaven and earth. And so that to me is as we watch the news these days, right, we see news flashes that grab our attention. How can that possibly be happening? I think we need to pause just like Nahum does and say, let's focus on the one who's in charge here. The Lord God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth, his name is Jesus. And so for us to keep our eyes focused on him and to interpret everything we see in the world based on our, our view of him is an incredibly important thing to do during uncertain times. And so just the way Nahum composes his book is inspired. And I think it's the way that we should view the world around us. So the character of God is on display, especially in verses 1 through 7. If you look at uh, verse 1, it says, An oracle concerning Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of, of, of Assyria. But again, it's a reminder of who stands behind the events of world history. Who stands behind the events that we see in the news? It's the Lord God of heaven. So we're going to come back and look at his character in just a little bit. But then in chapters 2 and 3... Uh, remember there in that first verse, he says, the judgment is coming against Nineveh. Well, chapters two and three paint a really vivid picture of what that judgment is going to look like. Very vivid pictures. That's one of the things I actually love most about the, the minor prophets is they paint some pictures that are just so graphic and vis visual. You can almost sit and feel like you're looking at what's happening as they're describing it. And so I want us to just walk through a couple of these verses. And, and basically this talks about how Nineveh is going to fall. So here's kind of the how. God says, I'm announcing a judgment against Nineveh. Well, here's how it's going to go down. Um, and we know it's interesting. Archaeology has kind of confirmed some of these details. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to study the downfall of Nineveh based on what the Greek historians tell us and also on archaeological evidence. Uh, the things that are predicted here in Nahum happen word for word. 
Uh, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 8, it says, With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Uh, and actually, this is interesting. When, when Nineveh was conquered, they were conquered by the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. Um, the Tigris River, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers were some of the two. They're still there flowing through the Middle East. The Tigris River flooded and actually eroded the walls of Nineveh until they started collapsing, actually provided a way for the Babylonians to enter the city. Uh, so Nineveh was this stronghold, this fortress. They had walls 100 feet high. They wrote about how they could ride three chariots side by side on top of this wall. They were absolutely certain they could never be conquered. And, and, and really, the other thing about Nineveh, as we're going to see here, is they were known as the most brutal regime the world had ever seen up till this time. They prided themselves on brutality. In fact, some of the archaeological evidence we have on, on Nineveh and, and Assyria is, is based on what they did in Israel. Uh, one of the kings of Assyria conquered a bunch of villages in Israel, and then he wrote down captions of what he did. He wrote almost like cartoons, like uh, um, illustrations on stone of what he had done. And he sh- there are pictures of people who are impaled, babies that are being slaughtered, uh, people being dismembered, just body parts lying everywhere. You know, if you think about uh, what happened a few years ago with ISIS, remember when ISIS came on the scene and how violent and brutal they were and how it just shocked everyone? Um, ISIS was, uh, you know, a terrorist organization, but it was small scale. It couldn't control the world. Well, guess what? Assyria did that exact same kind of thing, but they were the people in charge of everything. So everyone in that entire area, everyone in that part of the world would have been completely afraid of this nation of Assyria. So how did things happen? Look at chapter 2. We're just going to breeze through a few verses here. It says, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. This is a little picture of urban warfare during ancient days. If you can just imagine, it talks about the warriors being... Uh, their shields being red, clothed in scarlet. In other words, there's so much blood that they are coated in blood, covered in blood. Chapter 2, verse 9. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. We're going to see in a minute, one of the things that Assyria did is they demanded that the nations around them pay them gold and give them silver and treasure. And if they wouldn't, they would go in and just completely annihilate them. So they would establish uh, alliances, but at a great cost. And we'll find out actually Israel, Judah, tried to make one of those alliances. So all this wealth that they had is going to be stripped away. There's not going to be anything left. Another one, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. So this is really interesting. Again, uh, from archaeology, we know that if the Assyrians had a mascot, they would have called it the lion. Okay, The, the Assyrian kings loved to represent themselves as the great lion. Um, they would actually go out and hunt lions and then use their pelts and things like that. It's kind of like, I mean, we understand this, right? With your sports teams, you want some scary uh, mascot like the Tigers or should we say the Tigers? Is that how it, did I say it right? Something like that. So uh, 
but you have this mascot that's supposed to inspire fear. And the Assyrians literally used the lion as a mascot to inspire fear in their enemies. And here it says that the lion is now going to be hungry because there's not going to be anything left for the lion to feed his cubs. Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this description of just violence and death. Anybody who's been through a war, which I don't, I never have been, but I'm sure this is a, a description that you would never want to see. So it says this, chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. There is no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. What a vivid description of what's going to happen in this city. There's going to be just slaughter and violence. And here's what's interesting. What he's writing here resembles a lot of what Assyria writes about what they did to other nations. And so God is returning on them the violence that they brought to other nations, including Judah and Israel. Uh, a couple more here. Uh, chapter 3, verse 8. This is really interesting. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea, and water her wall? So again, Assyria actually was so powerful that not only from way up there by Israel, they extended their influence all the way down into the south part of Egypt. Thebes was the capital of Egypt. We have records of how that was conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, and, and, and basically, that was one of the feathers in their hat. We rule over Egypt. And God says... You're no better than them. You're going to go down just like you took them down. I'm going to take you down. Um, and then the last one I want to mention here is chapter 3, verse 11. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. But of course, as the rest of the book goes on to tell us, there is no refuge for the city of Nineveh. That phrase about going into hiding, actually the, the location of Nineveh was lost to history until like 1840 when, when archaeologists discovered it again. Uh, it was completely forgotten. It was hidden, just like this prophecy says. So completely destroyed was it that for over 2,000 years, nobody even knew where it was. And when they excavated it, they found, uh, apparently the archaeologists say the ash reaches really deep levels, so we know it was completely burned and completely annihilated, more than most cities ever would have been at this time. That just goes to show you how much people hated the Assyrians for what they had done, how much the Babylonians said, we are going to absolutely wipe them off the map. So that's how it happened. Violent, total, and permanent destruction. That's what Nahum announces against Nineveh. So you might say, well, man, what a great message for us here on Sunday morning, Marcus. Uh, I thought this was supposed to be encouraging. Um, well, here's the thing. I want to say, skip, go to our next, our next, uh, part of this message here. And that is to talk a little bit about the context of why this has to happen. And also, uh, how that kind of relates to God's message to his people. So why will this happen to Nineveh? You know, have you ever read a book and you get to the end of a really good book and you're like, oh man, I just wish it could keep going and I could find out what happens next. Um, and then you might discover there's actually a sequel to that book. Well, uh, you remember two weeks ago, uh, Miguel preached on the book of Jonah. And Jonah is one of those books where you get to the end of the book and, and God spares the city of Nineveh and Jonah's upset about it. And you get to the end of the book and you say, what happens next? Like, I wish I knew what happened. Did, did Jonah go home happy or did Nineveh stay good? Or guess what? Nahum is the sequel to the book of Jonah. 
And what we find is that the repentance that you see in the book of Jonah was really short-lived. It didn't last. Uh, it lasted maybe one generation at the most. And so this sequel, the book of Nahum, tells us that God spared Nineveh in Jonah's day, but they've turned their back on him again, and now there will be no more sparing. So the very last verse in the book, if you look at it, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19, why will this happen? It says, all who hear this news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? That's a rhetorical question. God's saying, is there anyone in the world who hasn't felt the effects of of Nineveh? And the answer is no. Every single person in that area at the time in some way would have been affected, especially in the nation of Judah. If you think about it from a personal standpoint, um, we're going to read some verses in just a minute. But uh, when Assyria came in and conquered every single city pretty much in Judah except Jerusalem, That means that virtually everyone left in the nation of Judah would have had a grandmother or a grandfather or a brother or a sister or a cousin or an aunt or an uncle or a friend who was killed, dismembered, hauled away, made into a slave, somehow directly affected by Assyria. You know, we have right now a pandemic going on with coronavirus. And we're all, you know, if you look around this room, we could say everyone's been affected in some way. Either health-wise, maybe somebody's actually experienced the virus, or at least economically. Your job's been affected. Your retirement's been affected. Your friendships have been affected. Everyone's been affected by, by this pandemic. Well, it's the same thing in this time of Nahum. Everyone was affected by the pandemic of violence that Assyria had experienced. And so why does this judgment have to happen? Because Assyria for generations has poured out violence and God says, I am the righteous judge. I'm going to hold you accountable. I want to show you just three events from the Old Testament that just kind of show a little bit about how Assyria affected the nation of Judah. And here's why the nation of Judah would have been happy and encouraged to hear this message of judgment on on uh, Nineveh. So I want us to look uh, at Second Kings. If you want to hold your finger in Nahum and flip over to Second Kings, we're going to look first at Second Kings chapter sixteen. All right. So the first person I want to tell you about is Ahaz. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there are a couple of kings I want to mention: Ahaz and Hezekiah. That's actually a father and a son. Uh, and if you want to, you can read more about these kings in the book of Isaiah. Uh, so these are two kings that lived during the time of Isaiah the prophet. Um, and they had significant interactions with the nation of Assyria. And you'll see they were not pretty interactions. So uh, here's the first one. Second uh, uh, Kings chapter 16. We're going to read in verse 2. This is talking about King Ahaz. It says, he was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of God, the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And it goes on to say all the things he did wrong. Well, guess what? One of the big things he did wrong was putting his trust in the nation of Assyria. Remember, I said they were this political power and they would try to establish alliances. Well, look a little further down. Uh, so Ahaz comes under attack by the northern kingdom, by his own brotherhood, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. He comes under attack. So what does he do? Instead of turning to the Lord, which Isaiah encourages him to do, 
he sends messages uh, to the king of Assyria. So look at verse 7. 2 Kings 16, verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. That name kind of just inspires fear, doesn't it? Tiglath-Pileser. Doesn't sound like a good guy. He sent messengers to him saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And he sent a present to the king of Assyria. In other words, a payment. He sent him a payment. And the king of Assyria listened to him. And the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, killing its people and carrying its people captive to Kir. And he killed Rezin. And then he goes on, uh, verse 10, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was there at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And then Uriah the priest built the altar. In other words, what happened here is Ahaz said, I'm going to pay the price to get Assyria to come and rescue us from these enemies. But it wasn't just a financial price. It was a spiritual price. And he said, if they save me, I'm going to worship their gods. In fact, he had the priest build an altar and put it in the temple of the living God. So he paid a spiritual price and a financial price with disastrous results. So that brings us then, you see the second person on the list is Hezekiah. So if we're still in 2 Kings, flip over a page or two to chapter 18. I want to read a couple of verses here. Hezekiah is the son of Ahaz. And Hezekiah says, no, I'm not going to put my trust in Assyria. I'm going to put my trust in the Lord. So Hezekiah was mostly a good king. And here's what it says happens. Uh, chapter 18, verses 13 through 16. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. All the fortified cities. In other words, there was none left. He conquered every single one of the cities in Judah. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish and said, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. And so what does Hezekiah do? So Hezekiah says, I have no choice. I have to pay this price. And so he gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and all the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, the king of Judah, had overlaid. And he gave it to the king of Assyria. So he paid this financial price. But guess what? The king of Assyria said, I'll take your money, but it's not good enough. I want you. And basically, all that money that he paid, uh, the king of Assyria did no good. The king of Assyria said, that's not enough. I want more. And in fact, he comes then, and the next couple chapters you flip over, it talks about the king of Assyria coming all the way up to Jerusalem. And if you read about it in the Assyrian account, it says, I shut up Hezekiah in the city of Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And the flood waters rose up to his neck. Uh, and then we find out what happens. God actually miraculously sets Hezekiah free. But here's what, here's the deal. Uh, just those are just a couple examples of how Israel had interacted with Assyria. And it wasn't pretty. Basically, he came, like I said, rose up to the neck, ready to kill everyone except the people in Jerusalem. Their violence touched everyone. 
And of course, Jonah, I mentioned this a little while ago, Jonah uh, in chapter four, um, actually chapter three, we find the account of how the people of Nineveh repented and yet it was short lived. So those are just a couple examples of, of events that happened between Judah and Assyria. But the bottom line is here, we get to the book of Nahum and God says, the ride is over. The story is ended. Your violence has touched everyone. Is there anyone who hasn't experienced your violence? The answer is no. And for that reason, God says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to hold you to account. So that's the overview. And that's the context of the book. But what I want us to do now is just go back to chapter one for a couple minutes and take a deeper dive. And what I think we're going to see here in the midst of all this judgment is gospel truth gospel truth. And if you look at the word gospel, the word gospel literally means good news or an announcement, a good announcement. And so there's a good announcement even in the middle of all this judgment. You know, we call this a deeper dive. Okay. I have one of my kids who learned to swim just this summer. And when you learn to swim, you start off in the shallow end, right? In a kid pool or in the shallow end. And soon enough, you can go out to the deep end. Well, this morning, uh, the book of Nahum, a lot of these minor prophets, they're not the shallow end of the pool. This is not the kiddie pool, okay? This is the deep end. And we've got some truths about God that we need to talk about this morning. And, and it's not popular to talk about some of these truths. Uh, it's the deep end. And yet, what I think we find when we look at these descriptions is that we serve a God who loves his people. And we'll care for them for all eternity. So let's take a little deeper dive here into chapter 1. I'm going to read starting in verse 2. And just listen to this list of things that describes God. And again, remember, he's announcing this judgment. But what I want us to see is the hope that he gives us through this. It says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath. For his enemies. So vengeance and wrath against sin. That's what we're seeing here. I'm going to keep reading. The Lord is slow to anger, verse 3, and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, verse 7, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, and they are many, They will be cut down and will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you, and I will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandments about you 
No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave. For you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So this is the promise from the Lord. One thing I want you to know is that very last verse, verse 15. How beautiful upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. And it's interesting, that actually kind of helps us see what's going on here. Because Isaiah is pretty much, we're pretty sure, talking about the nation of Babylon in those verses. And yet, Nahum quotes it and is talking about Assyria. In other words, this is a message to any nation or any person or any people who would oppose the Lord, the Almighty Lord. It's a warning. It's a pronouncement of judgment to any who take counsel against the Lord. You know, I think, first of all, what you see in this chapter is it would be a comfort to any who have suffered under Assyria. Think about what this book would mean to our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffered under, under ISIS or under oppressive governments. To know that we have a God who promises those people will one day face judgment for what they've done. It's a comfort to people like that. It's the comfort of God. And yet we have this description of God as a God of vengeance, a God of wrath, a God of judgment. I think the big takeaway we have to see here is that God must judge sin. There's a sin problem. Sin results in judgment. Anyone who sins against God will experience the judgment of God. It's judgment and death. And in the book of Nahum, Nineveh is exhibit A. They are the exhibit of all the injustice and cruelty and sin and terribleness, if that's a word, that could ever be out there. And God says they're going to face judgment for that. There's a sin problem. I love, uh, if you look at verse um, 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. That's actually quoting from Exodus chapter 34. That's actually one of the most quoted phrases in the Old Testament. I want to uh, flip over to Exodus 34. This is where God introduces himself to his people, kind of reintroduces himself. In chapter 34, it says uh, in verse 6, Again, they've just come out of Israel. God's given them the Ten Commandments. This is actually after the uh, golden calf, I believe. And uh, God says to them, The Lord passed before him, verse 6, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, oftentimes we push pause there and say, isn't that beautiful? God is a forgiving God. Uh, he loves sinners. He forgives sinners. And, and that is the most important thing. He wants that part to be mentioned first. But it goes on to describe what Nahum describes. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, God is a God who calls people to account for their actions. He offers love and forgiveness and compassion and steadfast love. But when people oppose that and reject that, they will face the consequences of their sin. And that's the message of Nahum. Verse 6, Nahum chapter 1 verse 6. 
Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Those are two rhetorical questions. And the answer is no one. No one can do it. No one can endure the strength of God's judgment unless they've received a pardon. This reminds me of verses flip over to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We're jumping all over today, but this is the exact same words. When God is announcing the judgment that happens in Revelation, which by the way, you might think uh, when Israel prayed for vengeance on their enemies, you know, we would never do something like that. But in the Lord's Prayer, when God says, when Jesus teaches us to pray, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Think about what you're really praying for there. You're praying for the kingdom that is promised in Revelation. And what does God say in Revelation? Well, he announces a lot of judgment against the sinners of the world. Chapter 6, verse 17. For the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In Revelation, the judgment is coming, and the answer is no one can stand. So you flip over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, and you get to verse 9. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So who can stand in the day of judgment? No one apart from Jesus Christ. But all those who have trusted in the Lamb, the one who was slain, the one who died in our place, if you trust Him, you have nothing to fear. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Who can stand? That's the solution. The salvation we find in Jesus Christ. You can stand for all eternity if you trust that he alone is the one who paid for your sins. You can't do anything to get out of this fix on your own. It's only through the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Every one of us is as guilty as the people in Nineveh. We don't want to admit that, right? That sounds terrible. They were the, they were the bad guys. Well, God says, apart from Jesus, all of you are sinners. You are all just as guilty as the Ninevites. And yet God says, I have provided a way for you to be pardoned from that. Because through my son, Jesus Christ, you've been set free from sin. All you have to do is trust that his death, his burial, and his resurrection were on your behalf. And that he gives you life through his son. You can stand for all eternity. Trust him. Believe in him. So when you read this book of Nahum... I think, first of all, like I said, it'd be a great comfort to those who've been oppressed, those who've suffered the injustice that, and, the, and the violence that God's people suffered. So it's comfort to those who are suffering. It's a warning to those who oppose God. But I think above all, as we read it today, it's an invitation to all who will trust in him. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So that's my question for you this morning. Do you know that he is good? Have you experienced his goodness through Jesus Christ? 
Have you taken refuge in him? And how do you take refuge in him? It's through trusting in him alone. Knowing that you can't earn forgiveness. That you can't ever be good enough to please God. But by trusting and taking refuge in the work of Jesus Christ. Coming under the shadow of his wings. Trusting in him alone. He is your only hope in life and in death. And that is the message of Nahum. God is in control. That God of the universe loves you and wants to rescue you. All you have to do is trust him. Turn to him. Will you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. You are a stronghold in the day of trouble. And God, you know those who take refuge in you. Father, I pray that every person in this room, if they haven't already done it, would take refuge in you and trust you for eternity. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you will, please uh, stand. I want to read a benediction for you uh, as you leave uh, from the book of Jude in the New Testament. So hear this benediction. Receive these good words from the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed.